Become the fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy. I'd like to talk today about philosophical problem of evil. This is an ancient problem that goes way back to the Old Testament. People struggling with faith crisis may wonder, how does this relate to me? Why should I care about this odd philosophical quandary? Well, one of the reasons is that this is the original faith crisis people have struggled with for millennia, and it strikes at the heart of faith, faith in God, reconciling that faith with the world that we live in, with the observations that we have of that fallen, imperfect world. So what is the philosophical problem of evil, the logical problem of evil? Well, it starts with the presumption that we believe in a God that's perfectly good, that is benevolent. By perfectly good and benevolent, we mean he is what we read about in First First Corinthians chapter 13 and Moroni chapter 7. He is patient, he is loving, he is kind, he is merciful, he is all those things. Second, we posit that God is all-powerful, that he's omnipotent, there's nothing he cannot do. Also, that God is all-knowing, there's nothing he does not know. So, with these three premises, we look at the world around us, and we realize there is evil around us. It's undeniable. There's evil, there's wickedness. There's people that suffer greatly. And so, what is the reconciliation between the evil in the world and a God that is all-powerful and also perfectly good? That's the crux. That's the heart of this philosophical problem of evil. One philosopher hundreds of years ago named David Hume, he was an 18th century skeptic, he expressed the contradiction this way. Why is there any misery at all in the world? Not by chance, surely. From some cause, then. Is it from the intention of the deity? But he is perfectly benevolent. Is it contrary to his intention? But he is almighty. Nothing can shake the solidarity of this reasoning. So short, so clear, so decisive. So the skeptic David Hume here brings this point up. There's obviously misery in the world. There's obviously a reason for it. It's not by chance. So there's some cause for it. Well, is that the intention of God? But he's perfectly benevolent. Well, is it opposite to what he wants to happen? But he's all-powerful. So that means he's not all-powerful if something's happening opposite his will. So David Hume frames the problem in this way. Many, many, many people throughout the millennia of human existence have observed these obvious conditions of evil and wickedness on the earth and compared that with a belief, a Judeo-Christian belief, in a perfectly good and all-powerful God and have really struggled to reconcile how those two can both be true. From an Orthodox Christian perspective, that is, from someone that accepts the Nicene or Athanasian creeds, a creedal Christian, we might say, not a Latter-day Saint, they have an even greater philosophical problem, an even greater philosophical hurdle, because... Most theolog- theologians will accept that God not just created the universe and is all-powerful, but he created it out of nothing. He created the universe ex nihilo. So that creates an e- even bigger contradiction, an even bigger logical problem, because now God created everything. So he created the evil is kind of the implication, or at least he is an accessory to its existence. So how does this affect the world, and how does this affect us individually? Let me just talk about that for a few moments. At any time in the history of the world, we can look all over the world and see huge amounts of suffering on many, many different levels. As an example, we recently had an act of uh, terror, some have called it, in Boston. Terrible bombing. We had this horrible explosion, an, act, an industrial accident in West Texas. Those are just two examples, and there's many, many others. In the Middle East, for example, countries of Iraq continue to face perpetual violence. Afghanistan is the same way. Syria's dealing with a civil war. There's refugee challenges throughout the Middle East right now. That's one example. Ivory Coast has recently gone through two civil wars. That's another example. 
So we see wartime all over the world. At, at, some time, at some point, we see war throughout the world. We also see natural disasters. We've seen accidents. We see famine. We see corruption. We see, on a more personal level, abuse. Husbands, fathers abusing their wives or their children is an example. It's extremely difficult. Sometimes people view it as impossible for people that go through these experiences to reconcile the belief in an all-powerful, perfectly good God with this terrible, horrible evil that we're confronted with. On a more personal level, each of us encounters some form of this problem of evil. We have to confront this issue of the evil that we see in us, or in our families, or in our friends, or in the world around us on a very personal level with a perfectly good God and an all-powerful God. Why does he allow, as an example of a question we might ask, how could he allow something so terrible to happen to someone so good or someone that was trying to be so good or appearing to be so good? This is something that we naturally struggle with. This is a faith crisis because it challenges the tenets of our faith in a loving God and a powerful God. And it's widespread. This philosophical problem of evil, this logical problem of evil, affects anyone, or can affect anyone, who sees evil and wickedness in the world and realizes that is fundamentally at odds with the nature of God. And so we see this philosophical problem of evil is extremely applicable throughout the world and to us individually. And so, struggling with a faith crisis, this particular problem is extremely relevant. Contrasting with the type of faith crisis that some Latter-day Saints experience with as an example, the Mountain Meadows Massacre or Joseph Smith and Polyandry as two examples, those strike at the Restoration, kind of question the validity of the Restoration or aspects of the Restoration. Well, philosophical problem of evil, much broader, much larger issue at hand. Now we're talking about God. Now we're talking about, am I going to believe in a God? And so it directly strikes not just in our testimony in the Restoration, but in our testimony of the Savior and of a God to begin with. So this is a very widespread, a very deep problem that can drive some into atheism or agnosticism easily. Each of us can understand that, I think, that people can look at this logical contradiction and struggle with it and end up in a place that they don't understand how God can live, don't understand how God can let so much suffering go on in the world. Again, the huge scale of suffering we've seen, again, in the 20th century, we've seen the Holocaust, we've seen tens of millions of Russians slaughtered by Stalin, we've seen millions die in famines in Russia, North Korea, and China, huge amounts of suffering. How can God let that happen? How can God let so many people die, suffer so greatly for something that was evidently not their fault? Very, very difficult to reconcile. Such observations begin with our belief in a perfectly good and all-powerful God. Very, very difficult. So, there are, of course, rebuttals or responses to this philosophical, logical problem of evil. One of those comes from a philosopher named Alvin Platinga. His response is something like this. He posits, or he supposes, that perhaps this relates to free will. That in order for God to create a universe that had free will for us to act, there must be some sort of evil associated with that. Perhaps God could not create a universe without free will, or with free will and without evil. Perhaps that was not a possibility. So God created the universe that allowed us to have free will, which inevitably incurred evil. Now, a critic could easily, or skeptic could easily say, well, then your God is not omnipotent if he's constrained by these principles and laws. It's an interesting quandary. Another response 
again, a kind of an orthodox Christian response to the philosophical problem of evil is this idea of predestination, that God is somehow, in a way that we may not understand, he is in total control of the universe. He has infinite foreknowledge, but he has infinite control. So even horrible, terrible things, God is somehow in control of that. Now, for some people, just knowing or believing that God is in control, that he's aware, and that this is part of his plan, is comforting to them. For us as Latter-day Saints, we have a whole set of tools in our toolkit to combat this philosophical problem of evil. Before I get to those, let me talk about this in the Latter-day Saint context. As an example, Joseph Smith. When he was young, he was evidently persecuted. He had an infection in his shoulder. This isn't necessarily persecution, but it's a pretty severe trial he went through as a young boy. An infection in his shoulder. Very, very painful. We know about this leg surgery that occurred. Miraculous that it happened, extremely painful, but the recovery was several years in the making. And so he was hobbling around on crutches and trying to gain his physical strength back over a long period of time. Of course, he explains that he was persecuted for claiming the first vision. And later, we know that he was persecuted for talking about translating gold plates and about the Book of Mormon. In, the 18, in 1837 and 1838, there was great persecution in Missouri. Many saints were driven from the state. This is mystifying to some at the time, and perhaps it was somewhat mystifying to Joseph Smith. You may remember in the early 1830s, the Lord told Joseph Smith that Jackson County, Missouri was Zion. That Zion was going to be built there. There was going to be a new Jerusalem there. There were plans for a temple, and not just one temple, a complex of temples there. This was not to be. As we look in the Doctrine and Covenants, we see several other revelations talking about, as an example, contention, jarrings, jealousy among the saints, which was one of the reasons it led to some persecution. Saints left Jackson County, went to Davies County, eventually were expelled from the state of Missouri. We know about the Hans Mill Massacre. We know about Joseph Smith trying to marshal the saints in some skirmishes at some point, eventually surrendering to the militia and going to Liberty Jail. Latter-day Saints typically paint this as he was betrayed and uh, a victim of traitors, in a sense. So he's in Liberty Jail. The saints have been driven from the state of Missouri, completely expelled violently, as the case was. The saints have been suffered, subject to terrible suffering at this time. So we see Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail, separated from the saints, and in his mind, separated from God somewhat. So, this is just one way of painting the picture that this philosophical problem of evil at some point, we struggle with. Even prophets struggle with at some point, at some level. Doctrine and Covenant section 121, Joseph Smith prays to the Lord, O God, where art thou? Where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? God, so God is evidently not close to Joseph, or he doesn't feel close to the Lord. He's not sure where the Lord is, what he's going to do, when he's going to do it. And so this is, in a sense, it's somewhat comforting for us, because when we feel unsettled, disturbed, when we feel that God is not close to us, well, in a sense, we're in good company, because Joseph Smith felt the same way. And we suppose many, many have felt that way. Many have to struggle to feel close to the Lord from time to time, or consistently. So the philosophical problem of evil, again, it, it very much relates to us as Latter-day Saints. It's part of our history. It's part of who we are. And it's part of us as mortality, as mortals. As Latter-day Saints, again, we have great tools to combat or to help not contradict or completely resolve the problem of evil. It exists. What we can do logically is create a space where it's possible to believe. We can have faith. As I've said before, I'm not a believer that God will use logic to make it easy for us to believe. But we may use logic to create a space for us to believe. What I'm saying is, we're not going to be able to solve the philosophical problem of evil with logic alone. However, with logic, we can create a space for us to still have faith, for us to still believe in a loving God, for us to acknowledge the evil that exists in the world, but also believe in a loving God and in a powerful God, and a perfect God that cares about us, that has a plan for us. So, how as Latter-day Saints can we combat this? 
Let me go back to Liberty Jail. Joseph again prays to the Lord. The Lord has an answer for him. You may remember this answer. Again, it's in Doctrine and Covenants, section 121. My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. So what is the answer? We'll talk about some of these, but this verse has a couple of answers for us as Latter-day Saints. And again, this isn't to completely resolve the philosophical problem of evil. It creates a space for us to believe. That's what logic can do for us. So in verse 7, the Lord says to Joseph, Peace be unto thy soul. This is one answer to the philosophical problem of evil that we can have, in a way that we may struggle to understand, we can have peace in our souls. We can have peace, even if we don't have full comprehension of why things are happening, or even what's happening. We can still have peace within ourselves. Elder Cook, in a recent conference address, talked about peace as a reward of personal righteousness at great length, which very much, very much resonates with this theme. He talks about how God won't necessarily take away our trials, but he will give us peace a deep and abiding spiritual contentment. It's a wonderful talk, and it talks about this idea that we can have peace, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of trials, as somewhat of a spiritual gift. So this is one answer the Lord gives us to this problem of evil. The Lord can give us immediate peace in accordance with his will, him to his timetable, of course. Another answer is the second part of verse 7. Again, Doctrine and Covenants section 121. The Lord tells Joseph, Thine adversity and thine afflictions shall be but a small moment. So, one, again, we're creating a space one way to have this fit or create a space for belief is to realize that we're in an eternal context. We see in short, short time frames. We remember yesterday, we're in the present, and we're looking forward to the future, which is fuzzy and hazy. We have a hard time sometimes remembering the distant past. We remember the recent past, usually very clearly. But the Lord wants us, at some level, even if we're unable to completely comprehend eternity, which we can't, at least we can try to visualize or understand that there is some eternal perspective. That, in the eternal scheme of things, from God's perspective, and ultimately from our perspective, whatever trials, whatever experience, whatever suffering we go through in this life is but a small moment, a small moment in eternity. So again, that's another response. That whatever suffering we have is a small drop in the bucket of mortality, which is a small drop in an ocean of infinity, in an ocean of eternity. Another response. Verse 8, Doctrine and Covenants, section 121. If thou shalt endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. There's kind of two promises there. One is the promise that we can triumph over our enemies, whatever that is, whether our enemy is guilt, whether our enemy is uh, faithlessness, whether that enemy is bitterness or jealousy, whether that enemy is really a person. We can triumph over our foes, and God will exalt us on high. Those, again, don't remove or eliminate the problem of evil, but they create a space for us to have faith that God can exalt us on high if we endure well, and we can triumph over our enemies. These are profound and powerful responses for, that allow us to have faith in a God that loves us. Another response to the philosophical problem of evil. The Lord tells Joseph Smith in Doctrine and Covenants section 122, he goes through a number of things that Joseph Smith has gone through recently. As an example, If thou art accused with all manner of false accusations, if thy enemies fall upon thee, they tear thee from the society of thy father and mother and brethren and sisters. And if with a drawn sword thine enemies tear thee from the bosom of thy wife and of thine offspring. And if if thou be if, he, if thy son be thrust from thee by the sword, and thou be dragged to prison, and thy enemies prowl around thee like wolves, wolves for the blood of the lamb, thou shouldst be cast into the pit, or in the hands of murderers, and the sentence of death passed upon me, thee. All of these things happen to Joseph Smith. And then he goes a little bit, the Lord goes a little bit further. If thou be cast into the deep, if the billow 
rolling surge conspire against thee, and all the elements combine to hedge up the way. The very jaws of hell gave open the mouth wide after thee. In this insight, know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. So that's another response. Again, it doesn't eliminate the problem, but it creates a space to believe that whatever experience we have can have some benefit to us. Elder Holland, in a talk a few years ago about Liberty Jail, discussed some lessons that we can learn from Liberty Jail. And they're very similar to these philosophical problem of evil kind of questions, kind of dilemmas, kind of solutions. These kind of things that we wrestle with regularly, or at least from time to time, Elder Holland talks about some of these principles. He quotes Brigham H. Roberts, who was a general authority of the First Council of the Seventy, who spoke of Liberty Jail as a prison temple. Elder Holland says that Elder Maxwell used the same phrasing in some of his writings. Let me just quote from Elder Holland. Certainly this prison temple lacked the purity, beauty, comfort, and cleanliness of our modern temples. The speech and behavior of the guards and criminals who came there were anything but temple-like. In fact, the restricting brutality and injustice of this experience at Liberty would make it seem the very antithesis of the liberating, merciful spirit of our temples and the ordinances performed in them. So, in what sense could Liberty Jail be called a temple? And what does such a title tell us about God's love and teachings, including where and when that love and those teachings are made manifest? In precisely this sense. So this is the principle that Elder Holland is wanting to explain to us. That you can have sacred, revelatory, profoundly instructive experiences with the Lord in any situation you are in. Indeed, you can have the sacred, revelatory, profoundly instructive experiences with the Lord in the most miserable experiences of your life, in the worst settings, while enduring the most painful injustices when facing the most insurmountable odds and opposition you have ever faced. In one way or another, great or small, dramatic or incidental, every one of us is going to spend a little time in Liberty Jail, spiritually speaking. We will face things we do not want to face for reasons that may not be our fault. Indeed, we may face difficult circumstances for reasons that were absolutely right and proper, reasons that came because we were trying to keep the commandments of the Lord. We may face persecution. We may endure heartache and separation from loved ones. We may be hungry and cold and forlorn. Let me take an aside here and say, we may have a faith crisis. Let me go back to Elder Holland's talk. Yes, before our lives are over, we may all be given a little taste of what the prophets faced often in their lives. But the lessons of the winter of 1838-39 to teach us that every experience can become a redemptive experience if we remain bonded to our Father in Heaven through it. These difficult lessons teach us that man's extremity is God's opportunity. And if we will be humble and faithful, if we will be believing and not curse God for our problems, he can turn the unfair and inhumane and debilitating prisons of our lives into temples, or at least into a circumstance that can bring comfort and revelation, divine companionship, and peace. That's the end of the quotation from Elder Holland, but I think you can get the vision of what Elder Holland is saying, and how he's talking very much about what the Lord told Joseph, that all these things will be for your good, for your benefit. Elder Holland goes into detail here about how can they be for our benefit. What does that mean? Well, it means that we can have spiritual experiences in the midst of these trials, of these difficulties, of our faith Christ, that God can be with us in the midst of these challenges. The caveat is, if we remain bonded to our Father in Heaven through it, if we try to be as close as we can to our Heavenly Father, then these fiery trials become redemptive experiences. The very, very key concept to remember, that even though God seems far away, if we can be as close as we can to Him, He will turn to us and make these unbelievably trying and challenging experiences and situations become a blessing, ultimately a blessing, as contradictory as that sounds. Going back to Doctrine and Covenants section 122, another reason that gives us space in this philosophical problem of evil. The Lord tells Joseph Smith, The Son of Man hath descended below them all. Art thou greater than he? 
Again, this does not resolve the philosophical problem of evil, but it creates a space. We remember the suffering that Jesus Christ went through, that he suffered all the pains and afflictions and temptations that afflicted every person, every man, woman, and child. Alma chapter 7 and 2 Nephi chapter 9 talk about this. The Savior went through that for us. We can suppose the Savior understands what it's like to go through a faith crisis because that is a painful experience. The Savior knows our pain, he knows our suffering. Therefore, we can project, in my opinion, the Savior must know what it would be like to have a faith crisis of some sort, a profound one, a difficult one, that may seem very odd to think about, but in a sense, it's no more odd than to say the Savior knows what it's like when we sin. He felt what it's like when we sin. In a sense, it's not much different than that to say God knows, the Savior knows what it's like when we have a faith crisis. Going back to Doctrine and Covenants section 122, the Lord tells Joseph Smith, Hold on thy way, the priesthood shall remain with thee. Their bounds are set, they cannot pass. Thy days are known, thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. Again, creating this space to believe in trials. God shall be with us, not just now, not just tomorrow, but forever and ever. The end of Doctrine and Covenants section 121 similarly talks about how our confidence can wax strong in the presence of the Lord. The doctrine of the gospel can distill upon our soul. The Holy Ghost can be our constant companion, our scepter, an unchanging scepter of truth and righteousness, and our dominion, an everlasting dominion, and will will automatically, without compulsory means, flow unto us forever and ever. A sense that God can be with us and bless us, not just today and tomorrow, forever, if we will be as devoted as we can to him. Those are the promises laid out in Scripture for us. There are a couple of other Latter-day Saint concepts that could be brought up and discussed in response to the philosophical problem of evil. In Second Nephi chapter 2, of course, the prophet Lehi talks about the importance of opposition. He says it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. Lehi tries to paint a picture for what things would be like if there was no opposition. Righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness nor misery, neither good nor bad. All things must needs be a compound in one. If it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead, having neither no life, neither death, nor corruption nor incorruption, happiness nor misery, neither sense nor insensibility. Wherefore, it must have been created for a thing of naught. There would have been no purpose in the end of its creation." Wherefore, this thing must needs destroy the wisdom of God and his eternal purposes and also the power and the mercy and the justice of God. Now, this is interesting for us, grappling with the problem of evil. Lehi says, if we don't have evil at some point or opposition, then that, the the absence of evil, destroys the wisdom of God, his purposes, and his power. That's an interesting idea. It flips this philosophical problem of evil on its head, in a sense, because... The problem of evil says there's evil, but how does that square with a just God, a loving God, a powerful God? There's a contradiction there. Well, Lehi says the opposite. He says the absence of opposition would destroy the power of God, the mercy of God, and love of God, the plan of God. Opposition was essential, is essential to his plan. Very interesting. So, if we can wrap our minds around this, Lehi is saying not only is evil a part of life, a part of the plan not to be surprised about, but it's essential. It's an essential component of the plan of salvation. Very interesting. Very interesting. Lehi tells his son Jacob something similar to what we've talked about with Joseph Smith and Liberty Jail. The Lord, Lehi, tells his son Jacob that the Lord will consecrate Jacob's afflictions for his gain. Lehi knows that he's, that Jacob has suffered, and he tells Jacob this. But he also tells Jacob that God can consecrate those afflictions for thy gain. He can make those suffering trials become something that benefits you. Very similar to what the Lord said in Doctrine and Covenants section 122 and what Elder Holland said about Liberty Jail being a prison temple, that God can be with us even in the midst of trying, soul-stretching difficulties. 
that God can consecrate our afflictions, again, we can suppose faith Christ for our gain, for our benefit. So we've talked about some of the Latter-day Saint responses, possible responses to the philosophical problem of evil. Why, as Latter-day Saints, we have a few more tools in our toolkit than some other Christians do about dealing with the philosophical problem of evil, creating a space for us to believe in a just God and a loving God, and also the existence of evil. Let me talk about a couple of other ones. Joseph Smith taught in the King Follett Discourse that there are some things that are eternal with God. One of those, he says, is intelligences, you and I. That God didn't just create our spirits out of nothing. He organized us out of intelligence or intelligences. Another thing that is co-eternal with God, something that's been eternal with God, matter, some sort of unorganized, chaotic matter. We don't believe, as Latter-day Saints, that God created the universe out of absolutely nothing. We believe he organized the universe out of existing matter. So there are some things that are eternal with God. Another thing that is eternal with God is a law-like structure or a principle of God. We understand, as Latter-day Saints, that God was upset at Satan, that the war in heaven was about Satan's desire to destroy the agency of man. And that this was the breaking point between Satan and his followers, the Heavenly Father and the Savior and their followers. The agency. The agency. And so there's some principle there that Heavenly Father would not compromise on. And in the scriptures, we hear other instances of principles that seem to be eternal. References to things that go back to the foundation of the earth. Or discussions about mercy and justice. We think about the necessity of an atonement. It seems like there's some principles like that that are co-eternal with God. Or something like that. So again, as Latter-day Saints, this gives us not the solution to the philosophical problem of evil, but it gives us a space to believe that even though there's evil in the world, even though there's great wickedness, even though there's immense suffering, we can still believe in a loving God, in a perfect God, in an all-knowing God, and a powerful God. We can still believe in that. Let me just share my thoughts that, again, all of us have to confront, and not once, not twice, but regularly, perhaps consistently, this idea of a loving, powerful God and his imperfect servants, or imperfect servants in the church, or wicked people in the church, or wicked people outside of the church, or just overall wickedness in the world, or other types of human suffering. We all have to reconcile with this, and this is not easy. It is difficult. But let me share with you my conviction, my hope, and my faith, my belief, that each of us can create a space, maybe even a very, very small space, but we can create a space to believe in a loving God. Maybe what that means is we have to create a space where we keep the possibility of a loving God open. Maybe that's the best we can do. But as we keep that space, do the best we can to create that space to believe in God, he can bless us, he can be with us in ways that we may not understand, that we may not see and discern. He can bless us with peace, he can bless us with understanding, in his way, and in his time frame, not in our way, not in our time frame, and trials and suffering that seem unbearable, that seem incomprehensible, can, in the Lord's way and in his timing, become what seems like a blessing to us in how we are developed, how we're strengthened, and how we're changed. As you pay attention to general conference talks, as an example, or as you read the scriptures, you will see, or you can see, repeated references to this philosophical problem of evil, or perhaps repeated responses to this philosophical problem of evil, the problem of suffering. And as Latter-day Saints, we are, like everyone else, faced with this problem on a regular basis. But we can struggle and strive to create this space where we can believe in a loving God. Not to brainwash ourselves, not to pull the wool over our eyes or to trick ourselves, but to honest, honestly create a space in our minds and a space in our hearts to believe in a loving God that still cares about us, that still has a plan for us, that can still bless us eternally and now with peace, even if we don't understand much of what we see around us. God can still bless us with peace. I know he does bless his saints with peace. 
even if we don't have complete understanding, and that he can bless us with faith in his way and his time frame, that trials can become a blessing in a way that can be very difficult for us. Trials, again, are not easy. They're going to be difficult. But scriptures teach, and it's my conviction, that they can become a blessing to us. Let me also say that I'm an armchair philosopher. I'm not formally trained, as you can probably tell. And for those that may be interested in this, I'm sure you can research it and find out much more information and have much more profound responses and insights than I have. And if there are those that are interested in having this sort of discussion, I think it's extremely useful to talk about the problem of evil and how we can deal with it, how we can overcome evil, or at least create a space for faith in our lives. Thank you for your time, and I hope you can have a space in your life for faith. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love Here I raise my Ebenezer Here by thy great help I've come And I hope by thy good pleasure Safely to arrive at home Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger Interposed his precious blood From sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace! Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransom soul away. Send thy now to carry me to realms of endless day Oh to grace how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be let thy goodness like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it Seal it for thy courts above 
Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.